in the fall of 2006. It was November. And it was two week, weeks until I was to be married. And up until that point, I had lived with a group of guys almost all of my college career and post-college. And we did well. We could take care of ourselves. And my wife, Julie, lived in an apartment with three girls. And my job, two weeks before we got married, was to move into our apartment downtown early and get things ready. Get rg to turn on the lights, make the apartment ready. And I need to tell you something about my family. I am one of three boys. And the one thing my mother did not want us to be was helpless. We knew how to cook. We knew how to clean. We knew how to take care of things. So for me to move in two weeks early, I thought, yeah, I'm going to show my wife-to-be that I can take care of her. So we, I move in, and I notice right off the bat, the one thing that we have to buy that I have never bought in my life is a queen-size mattress and box spring, right? We've been living, on, been living on a single mattress my entire life. So I do my research and I realize, wow, these things are expensive. And, and people that sell mattresses, if there's somebody in here, please don't be offended, but man, it's vicious. It's worse than buying a car, right? So I do my homework, you know, and there's, there's four places I can go. And Julie and I jump in the car and we go out mattress shopping. And I do my Dave Ramsey thing, my Clark Howard thing. I'm like, hey, I got cash. What, what can you do for me? What about a floor model? What about a, you know, a mattress that's going obsolete? I'll take that one. Can you throw in free delivery? Yeah, I got that one too, right? So I get the mattress delivered and the box spring and our bed covering, all of that is in the wedding registry. So that's it, no problem. I've got a sleeping bag. I'll sleep on that, on the mattress until we get married. When we come back, we'll unpack and, and we'll get that going. So we get married we go on our honeymoon, and we come back, and Julie moves in, and we start taking out our gifts from our wedding registry. And Julie comes into the bedroom where I've been sleeping all this time, and she says, Sherwin, come here. So I come in, and she said, is this where you've been sleeping? I go, yeah, here's a mattress. Here's my sleeping bag. She picks up my sleeping bag, and she looks at it and goes, Sherwin, you've been sleeping on the box spring. This morning, today, I want to talk about how we can make the most of our life. And maybe also talk about, like my mattress, maybe a wasted purpose. There's a book written by John Piper, many of you know that name, uh, called Don't Waste Your Life. And he's got an interesting quote in this book that really convicted me. Let me read it for you. Oh, how many lives are wasted by people who believe that the Christian life means simply avoiding badness and providing for the family. So there's no adultery, no stealing, no killing, no embezzlement, no fraud. Just lots of hard work during the day and lots of TV and video in the evening. That was convicting for us. During quality family time and lots of fun on the weekend, fun stuff on the weekend, woven around church mostly. This life, for millions of people, wasted life. We were created for far more. And to help us to dig into that, let's take a look at 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2. Would you read with me? Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, 
Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather the will of God. And right off in verse 1, this phrase comes out at me. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude. He's talking here about Christ. What does Peter, the author, mean? Arm yourselves with the same attitude as Christ. You'll remember Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. He's praying and he understands his purpose. Because one of the things that suffering does is it clarifies your purpose. It puts life into perspective. It makes you question, what am I doing and how much time do I have left? And how long will I go through this suffering? Because while I'm suffering, I need to do exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And so Jesus in the garden, he prays and he says to God the Father, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me. Yet not as I will, but you will. And so his attitude is this. It's one of surrendering to the will of God and the purpose of God. And I don't know about you, but I did not grow up learning from my parents how to surrender. I don't ever remember having a conversation with my seven-year-old. Yesterday, we learned how to make a fire. Today, we're going to learn how to surrender. No, we teach our kids how to fight. And so having an attitude of surrender is very difficult for me. And so we'll see later on in this passage, it's more than just surrendering. Surrendering is just the beginning. It's really surrendering to be called to do something else, to go to a purpose, to become like Christ. And so my main point for these two verses is this. He became like us so that we may become like him. He became like us so that we may become like him. It is only because of the work of Christ and what he did that we can become like him. And so the encouragement here is that we should have the same attitude as Christ, one of surrendering for a greater purpose. Let's read on. Same chapter 4, verses 11 to, verses 8 to 11. Here we go. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do this as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.
And a summary statement for these three verses is this. Redemption is God choosing us. Restoration is us continually choosing God. Restoration is us continually choosing God. And it is because Christ's mission on the cross did not end with his death. His death. Our Christian journey does not end at the point of accepting forgiveness. There is so much more. You'll remember Jesus saying, the thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So when does that life begin? Does it begin when we are with Jesus or does it begin today? And the answer is both. That invitation for a full life begins today. So redemption is God choosing us. Restoration is us continually choosing God. Let me go back to my mattress. When I bought that mattress and I paid for it, I redeemed it. It was mine. When I slept on the box spring for three weeks to impress my wife-to-be, it was not living a restored life. It did not serve any purpose. For me to restore that mattress, I would have had to take the mattress from the, being on, on the bottom of the box spring, put it on top, because that's the way it was delivered, and restore it. So restoration is me making that choice and actually allowing it to live out that purpose. Someone talks about, about us as being trees, as plants. And verses 1 to 3 addresses this, that we were made for so much more. Let's look at that. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates in his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Key point here. Whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do, prosper. The point of that tree getting nourishment and getting rooted is to bear fruit. And the author of Psalms has to stay that because not all fruit trees bear fruit. If you don't believe me, you need to come to my home and look at some of my tomato plants because they have not borne any fruit. Not all fruit trees bear fruit, but we are called to be rooted and to bear fruit and to have that purpose. So we were redeemed for a purpose so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And so let me ask some questions so that we can apply this. The first question is for you individually. And this is the question. What is the biggest 
obstacle to living out God's purpose in your life? What is the biggest obstacle to living out God's purpose in your life? Take a pause and think with me. Whatever stage of life you are in, whether you're a student or you're retired, whether you own your own business or you work for a company, whether you're single or you're married, whether you're a mom or a dad, what is the biggest obstacle to living out God's purpose in your life? For me, one of the biggest obstacles is insecurity, especially when it comes to sharing my faith. You see, I have no problems building a relationship with people, with friends at work, and then eventually or maybe telling them about my faith or what God is doing in my life. But to start off, I need to build that relationship. And I'm very insecure about just laying it all out there. So some of you will remember about two or three months ago, we came out and we said, you know, we're all at home. We're all watching church online. We at Browncraft, we're going to give you some yard signs. We want you to put it up, put it in your yard. Let people know, let your neighbors know you can watch our services online. And that announcement went out and my wife and kids happily came to church, got in line, got a yard sign and brought that yard sign home to me. And guess what I did with that yard sign? Put it in my garage. Because if you want to know what I believe and you're my neighbor, I want to build a relationship with you. And then maybe we'll have you over for dinner. And then maybe eventually I'll tell you what I believe. But to just put a sign out there and let you know what I believe, whew, that's, that makes me feel uneasy. I'm insecure about that. And so that yard sign lived happily and safely and dry in my garage for a couple of days. And eventually... I said, you know what? I need to take a step of faith here. Let me take out this yard sign and put it in the front of my yard. And I had just planted some lovely flowers in the front of my driveway, and I put it right there because I thought, you know, maybe they'll look at the flowers or so. So I put my sign out there, and my insecure self would go out there and water my plants every day. So here I am. And interestingly enough, a week or so went by, and I'm out there, and I'm watering my plants. And here comes a lady pushing her baby, going for a walk, and I'm watering, you know, not making eye contact, you know, the, that kind of a thing. And she says to me, I see your sign about Browncroft. Would you believe it? Still not making eye contact. And, and I said, yes, yes, that, that is Browncroft. It's, it's the church I go to. And she said, you know what? I grew up going to Browncroft when I was younger. My mom used to take me. And, you know, it's been a very, very long time since. And my mom has retired and since moved to Florida. But now that I have kids, you know, I've always wondered because this is the only church experience I know. And so we continued to talk. And it was almost like she was teaching me to talk about my faith. And she was teaching me to invite her to church. And eventually I said, well, you're in luck because you can experience church online. The services are available. Here you go. It's right on. The, here's the website right here. And she was thankful. And she said, I'll check it out. And there you go. A step of faith for me past my insecurity. So what is that obstacle that is in your life that stops you from living out your purpose? Is it 
the need to be in control. And so you do not want to surrender so that God can do something else with your life, so that you can live out your purpose, so that you can have that same attitude as Christ. Is it that need to control? Is it pride? Is it a lack of faith that if you give up your time, if you give up your resources, if you give up your home, your treasure, that you are giving it away and God will not give it back. If I give to what God wants me to give, to his church, to his mission, to a ministry, then I can't get back that money. And, and I may not be able to provide for myself. Is it a lack of faith that God is calling me to do something, to go somewhere, and he may just leave me hanging? Like Moses, he may call me to do something, and I may look at him and say, but who am I that I should go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go? But the truth is, it is not who we are. It is who God is. It's not who we are. God says, it's not about you, Moses. It's who I am. And it's not about what you have, a stick. I can use a stick. God says, go with your stick and tell Moses who I am. So let me ask you again, and let me challenge you to really think this through. Journal it, write it, pray it. What is the biggest obstacle to living out God's purpose in your life? Second question I want to ask you so that you can apply this. What is the biggest obstacle to living out God's purpose as a family? What is the biggest obstacle to living out God's purpose as a family? God has placed you as a family, whatever your family unit looks like, uniquely, both in terms of location, where you live, and also within your extended family. You live in a neighborhood. You have neighbors. You have other people that go to the schools that you go to, to the Y, when you can go back to the Y, to the playground, to your Wegmans. To wherever it is that you go, your family is uniquely positioned. You have a sphere of influence. You have people that you can talk to. And in your extended family, like mine, you probably have lots of characters. And God has put you in that place, in your family, and you'll see family at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, at Easter, on family reunions. God has put you in your family for a purpose. What is that? And what is that obstacle stopping you from doing what God wants you to do? For my family, I would say the biggest obstacle is time. We just do not have enough time. I'll tell you, my wife could be an Uber driver. She might as well have our kids pay them because she spends a ton of time in the car. And sometimes we'll go an entire week and we haven't sat down face to face and had a meal and looked each other in the eyes and had a good conversation without having to cut somebody's food up into little squares. 
And so time is of the essence for us. And it's really hard to say, God, what are you asking us to do to go as a family? We barely have enough time for each other. And what we found out is instead of adding things to our plate, what we can do is add people to our plate. So we're going to do things as a family. And instead of adding extra events, we're going to open up our home. And we're going to invite people to our home and to our life and the ministry and the conversations that happen. And so for us, we, we both are transplants to the area. We don't have any extended family in Rochester. I know. It's, it's good and it's bad. Every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every Easter, we can do whatever we want. I'll tell you a secret. There's some Thanksgivings we didn't even cook turkey because we didn't feel like it. And the kids don't really know any better. We can do whatever we want. So one of the things that we do is we invite international students over for almost every single holiday. They don't have a place to go. We like to cook, and we don't have enough people to feed. So it's a great fit. And so international students come from either U of R, RIT, all the time. Hindus, Muslims, people from Asia, people from all over the place. And we just invite them into our lives. And the ones that stay on and stay with us and stay connected, we stay connected to them. The ones that come for one holiday, they just stay. And there was one holiday that we've done with international students that was really interested. It wasn't Thanksgiving, it wasn't Christmas, and it wasn't Easter. It was actually Halloween. We had a request from two girls, one from France and one from Croatia. And somehow they got in touch with a crew contact, which is a student ministry at U of R and RIT. And these were two international students that wanted to experience an American Halloween. And at the time, we, you know, we have young kids, and we're definitely going to go trick-or-treating. So we said, you just come dressed up if you want to, and you show up at this time, we'll have a meal together, we'll have dinner, and then we'll go out trick-or-treating, and you'll see what all the, the hype is about. So they did. The, these two girls came over from RIT, dressed up, had dinner together. The only thing I, I did or said that could be, you know, would, would indicate our faith is really prayer during the meal. That was it. And then after that, we went out with trick-or-treating. After trick-or-treating, we stayed in touch, and the girl from France, we invited her over for Thanksgiving. And then she didn't know what a Christmas tree was like cutting down. So we said, you want to come cut down a Christmas tree? Go ahead. She did that. We did a little bit of Christmas, and we stayed in touch with her. She was not a believer. We did our best, and we had more time. We shared our faith. The girl from Kosovo, however... We connected at Halloween. We stayed in touch with her, but we never saw her again. I never saw her again. She never came back for any of the holidays. Um, and we felt like we had done our, our part. We did what she wanted to do. She experienced Halloween. Fast forward seven months later, and I get in invited to be on a panel at a crew meeting at RIT. So this is the Christian group on campus, open to anybody, not just Christians, discipleship going on internally, externally, and it's me and, and another person, and we're just talking about our faith and how we live out our faith at work. So it's mostly work and being a Christian. And we go through this hour, hour and a half, people firing questions at us. John Amaya, who spoke a couple of weeks ago, was there moderating, and we're doing our thing. Everything goes well. RIT is home turf for me because that's where I graduated from. And then after the session... I'm there getting ready to go home, and who shows up but this girl from Kosovo. 
And she comes up, and I remember her name. I remember who she was, and I said, it's great to see you. And she's almost weepy. And she said, I've never been to this meeting before. I mean, she's not a Christian. And I saw it, and I was interested in it, and I was really scared. But I decided I was going to come. So I came, and when I saw you standing up up there, and you were one of the people speaking, I realized I at least know one person. And she stuck the whole way through. And so God, if we're willing to be open to his purpose, will use us. Whatever it is that we have, if we open it up to God, God will use it. So what is that obstacle to you and your family living out God's purpose? You may think, maybe it's not time. You've got time, but maybe it's money. Maybe you think your house is not clean enough. Maybe you think your house is not big enough. Maybe you think your kids aren't well-behaved enough, and they'll show you up. What is it that you think that is stopping you from God using your family? Invite people to join you in your family or find something that your family is going to do and invite others to go on that journey. You know, if you've got kids like I do, maybe you need to help in our family ministry. Maybe you need to look into things like 441. Take your kids to their program and also help with that program. Maybe it's looking at our outreach programs and maybe it's going on a short-term mission trip with your family. Take your family along for the ride and open it up so others can see that your family has a purpose and it's more than just having a nice house and going through Netflix series and keeping your kids happy. What is that that you need to do? The last question I want to ask you as we apply this is, what is the biggest obstacle to living out God's purpose as a church? What is that obstacle? And I'm talking about us here at Browncroft Community Church. What is our biggest obstacle to living out God's purpose for us as a church? Let me paint you a picture of the church I would love for us to be. This is a quote from Emperor Julian, so A.D. 300, we're talking about. And if you'll remember the Roman religion, the emperor was worshipped as a god. So if you're an emperor, it's your two advantage. It's to your advantage that people are religious because they're going to be worshipping you. And the emperor Julian had seen that, you know, religion was going down in Rome. So he's racking his brain and he's thinking, how can I make sure that the pagan Roman religion continues to thrive? And he's complaining to a friend, and his complaint is captured. And his complaint is mostly about Christians, whom he calls atheists, because we don't believe in worshiping the Roman God. And it's really interesting, because it's a picture of who I believe the church should be, this early church is who we should be. And here's the quote. This is Emperor Julian complaining. He says, Atheism, the Christian faith, had been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their poor, 
but for ours as well, while those who belong to us in vain for the help that we should render them. The Christians of that time were upsetting the Roman emperor, likely one of the wealthiest persons in that day and age. The poor Christian outsiders had upset him. Let me ask you this. What would you like our reputation, Browncroft Community Church, to be? What do you want people to think about our purpose? You know, I'm very thankful for many of you who are involved already in Browncroft, not only serving on campus, off campus, giving up your time, giving up your treasure, supporting us financially. But let me tell you what I think the biggest obstacle to us as a church living out our purpose is. It is the fact that not enough of us are in the game. Not enough of us are truly in the game and living out the purpose of this church, what God has called us to be. There are many of us doing all that we can, but there are not enough of us. Jesus said while he was here that the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. And I believe that that was true then, and it is still true now. We want to do better at that as a church. We want to provide opportunities for you to serve here and to serve outside of the walls of this church. So one of the things that I'm going to invite you to do, I'm going to ask you to do after this, you'll see tomorrow there's going to be a link that comes out with a survey about our ministries both locally and globally. How we're involved, how you would like to be involved, how we're contributing financially, how we're funding. I would love for you to give us some feedback. Take that survey. If there's an interest in getting involved, there'll be an opportunity to indicate that on the survey. But let's get a baseline of where we are and how we're doing, and let's get in the game. More of us, because the harvest is plenty. Let me close by just telling you a quick story about Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you may know that name. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was born right before the end of World War I, in a time where Germany as a civilization, as a country, looked unstoppable. He died 39 years later, right before the end of World War II, at a time when it looked like the German country would no longer exist anymore. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a person of privilege, was from a family of means. He was a really, really smart guy, two PhDs by the time he was 23. But what's remarkable about him was not his intellect, his knowledge of philosophy or theology, but the way he lived out his purpose. And during the time that the Nazi regime was climbing up, moving up, the church began to split into two. One church endorsed and embraced the ideology of the Nazi regime and all that came with it. And they moved along with it with the rise of Hitler. And a much smaller group of Christians that we call the Confessing Church said, no, we are called for so much more. We are made in the image of God. The way that we treat people 
is, is, has to be so much more. And that small group of Christians called the Confessing Church paid the price. And Diedrich Bonhoeffer was part of that small Confessing Church. In fact, at the time, he had a cushy job in the U.S. teaching theology in a seminary. And he, because he knew his purpose, took one of the last flights back to Germany before the start of World War II. And he ultimately paid the price with his life. But what we celebrate from Dietrich Bonhoeffer is not that death, but what he inspired and what he wrote. And let me just read you, in closing, one last paragraph from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship. It says this, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of the encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What is your purpose? What would God have you to do? How might you surrender and have the same attitude as Christ? Let's pray. Father God, we confess to you that we love our own agenda, our own security, and we love trusting in ourselves. And Lord, for us to surrender, to give our will over to you, to have the same attitude as Christ is very difficult. But Father, as people, as families, at, as a church, Lord, we want to have a passion and a purpose far greater than ourselves. Lord, we want to be broken for what breaks your heart. We want to, Lord, do your will. We want to be on fire for what you're doing in this world. And we want to participate. And so, Father, we just confess to you that we need your help. We need your guidance in doing that. And so, Lord, help us to do that. We are here. We are available, Lord. We struggle. We have doubts. We're insecure about who we are. But, Lord, we anchor on not who we are, but on who you are. So be our God. Be our God. Help us to be a blessing to this world. In Christ's name we pray.